You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Take their seats, please. Sorry, we're running a few minutes late. Uh, good, I was going to say good afternoon, uh, friends, uh, colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen, provost. My name is Jane Oldmeyer, and I have the privilege of being the coordinator of this uh, fantastic uh, 2019 CHCI Conference on Cultural Interventions. I'm going to say a few words about the conference uh, and uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub, which I direct in a moment. But I'd like to kick things off formally by inviting the Provost, who's also the President, Rector, Vice-Chancellor, uh, <laughs> just for the Americans in the audience, he's not our Chief Academic Officer, he's our President, um, to say a few words of welcome. And it really does give me great pleasure uh, to invite the Provost to do that. He's been such a friend of the Humanities of Trinity. Happy. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to welcome so many distinguished guests to Trinity College Dublin. It's an honour for us in our university to host CHCI's annual meeting. I know that earlier today you had a panel on advocacy for the humanities. I'm sorry not to have been able to attend, but let me say a few brief words now on this subject. The first thing to say is that it isn't something that I or anyone else should have to do. Why should the arts and humanities need advocacy? It's self-evident that they're essential to the progressiveness of any society. And I say that as a mechanical engineer. <laughs> Each and every society is the sum of its history and culture, its arts and literature, its politics and laws, its religious and philosophical and social practices. And each and every society interacts with other societies in a rich, interdependent exchange of knowledge, creativity, and culture. Without education in the arts and humanities, we would find ourselves not knowing where we came from, not knowing what we should value, or how we should relate to others. We would lose perspective on where we're headed. But it seems that arts and humanities as academic disciplines are under threat. Not necessarily threat of disappearing, but the threat of being sidelined. Rather than advocate, however, I'd prefer just to talk about how we're doing things in Trinity. Because in this university, the arts and humanities are so embedded that it would be impossible to remove them and expect to continue functioning. We might as well try to function on half a heart or half a liver. In Trinity, we've identified four graduate attributes which we believe all graduates will need in order to flourish in their careers and live in a rapidly changing world. In fact, we managed to get the whole of the academic community and all its disciplines to agree on these four attributes that we want our students, our undergraduates, to have when they walk out front arch after graduation. We want them to think independently, 
to communicate effectively, to develop continuously, and to act responsibly. It can be a challenge to embed all these four attributes, and I'm sure uh, that without the arts and humanities and without our multidisciplinary university, we couldn't do it. Arts and humanities in particular go across the whole university. Student societies perform plays, films, and concerts for the benefit of us all here on campus. The creative arts give us the metaphorical means to confront moral issues, to start thinking indeed about what it means to act responsibly. The Trinity Long Room Hope drives political, social, and cultural discourse on campus. The Hope takes on responsibility for debating crucial issues, the crucial issues of the day, predicated on research and scholarship. It brings together academics and other experts from across our society. In just a short decade, the Irish public has come to see the Hope as a place of dialogue, discourse, and debate. The Hope also coordinates cross-faculty and interdisciplinary research. In Trinity, we know that issues like ecology, digital engagement, aging, and international development require an interdisciplinary approach. The age of silos is past. Confronted with the global issues confronting humanity and the planet, it's axiomatic that we should coalesce expertise and perspective. With our cross-faculty medical humanities initiative, we acknowledge the central role that arts and humanities play in human health. They also play a central role in planetary health. Over the next few years, we'll be building a pioneering new engineering, environment, and emerging technologies, E3, Institute, to bring different perspectives and disciplines together to help tackle climate change and biodiversity loss. It's through literature, art, and the humanities that we articulate and depict the crisis now facing us. They bring narrative, metaphors, history and understanding to the crisis facing us, about without which we can't hope to overcome it. 140 years ago, Jared Manley Hopkins, with astonishing premonition, seemed to envisage the horror of biodiversity loss in his poem, Inverse Nade. He was writing about Scotland, but he lived, of course, for many years here in Dublin as a professor of classics in the then Catholic University of Ireland. And his poem, Inverse Nade, has always reminded me of the Irish landscape, and it goes, the final verse goes, what would the world be once bereft of wet and wildness? Let them be left, oh, let them be left, wet and wildness. Long live the weeds and wildness yet. As an engineer, I'm excited about using technology to fight climate change, but we also need to change hearts and souls, to focus attention on the urgency of the mission uh, and to save the beauty of our planet. Engineers haven't the words for this. It takes a poet. Long live the weeds and the wildness yet. Thank you very much.
thank you, Provost. It's lovely to have a president who loves poetry. Um, and thank you. Uh, can I just add my own very warm uh, welcome? It's lovely to see so many people here. As I introduce Joe Glearson, or before I introduce Joe Glearson, I do say, want to say a few things about what it is that we do in the Trinity Long Room Hub. And the Provost has actually uh, touched uh, on it. I, I don't know, those of you who've just arrived, have you had a chance to actually see the Trinity Long Room Hub yet? No, you're shaking heads. You I've got a beautiful a pop up behind me, uh, uh, but it's literally above us. We are built on a bridge over the Edmund Burke building, uh, uh, lecture theatre where we now are. So in the hub, we do three things. We support the research excellence of the arts and humanities across 20 disciplines. Um, and Trinity's excellence there stretches back to the 17th century. Uh, Swift, and I could go on right through to Beckett, uh, encapsulates uh, that. Uh, and today, we're the most highly ranked faculty area in the university rankings, not just in Trinity, but in Ireland. And that's something we celebrate. The second thing we do, as the Provost has alluded, is we promote uh, conversations across disciplines. Multi-interdisciplinarity, multi interdisciplinarity, and transdisciplinarity across the health sciences, the physical sciences, the natural sciences, the social sciences, the computer sciences. We're coordinating a <coughs> European project called Shape ID. I mentioned it very briefly in the previous wonderful session that we had on advocacy for the humanities. And the whole point of that EU-funded project that will report directly to the Commission is that we start putting the arts and humanities at the centre of these conversations, rather than being uh, the parson's nose or the service providers, the disseminators that many of us currently uh, are. Uh, those of you who want to join that conversation with us, we're having a lunch tomorrow in the Neil Hoey uh, 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 lecture theatre in, in the hub, sorry, in the ideas space in the hub. The other thing that we've been doing and focusing on is the crisis of democracy and cultural trauma. Uh, we're extremely grateful to the Mellon Foundation and to the uh, uh, CHCI for funding that initiative, but again, it brings 10 disciplines um, uh, from across the arts, humanities and social sciences to ask that very basic question of why people are preferring uh, to live with populism rather than uh, uh, democracy. Um, we believe that these sorts of conversations have to take pro uh, place across uh, uh, disciplines. So inter and multidisciplinarity is the second thing we do. The third thing we do is public humanities. Advocacy is a very important role, uh, a, a very important part of what our role is. But we also believe that we should be taking the learnings of the arts and humanities to the widest uh, uh, possible audiences. And we have many programs. Uh, we probably run about 250 events uh, in the hub. Uh, but even our window, again, I don't know if you've noticed the window uh, with the Heaney quote on it. But 20,000 people a day walk past that window. It's a very powerful, a very simple way of influencing a public discourse. 
For much of this year, um, we've had on our window a quote from the 18th century statesman and Trinity graduate Edmund Burke. And I'll just, the quote read, Rage and frenzy will pull down more in half an hour than prudence, deliberation, and foresight can build up in a hundred years. With a hard Brexit literally on our doorstep uh, in the autumn and the Good Friday Agreement being compromised, this isn't uh, 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 going away. Uh, and it's a theme that we'll be returning to in the final session of our conference on uh, Saturday. Uh, and I think we'll all, we all feel that uh, uh, Burke's warning uh, still rings true. Um, uh, and uh, I just want to say, you'll struggle to find a person in Ireland who thinks Brexit is a good idea. Um, uh, we wish it wasn't happening. Uh, and we will continue to work very hard with our colleagues in the UK to do everything possible to maintain um, a very, very strong relationships, north, south, and east, west. But we also recognize that our future is in Europe. So it's a very, very, very challenging moment uh, uh, for Ireland. But we didn't want the Burke quote to dominate this conference. Uh, what we wanted was a quote that captures the essence of what this conference is about, cultural interventions. Uh, and over the course of the next few days, we'll explore a wide range of cultural interventions by individuals and institutions. We will largely use Ireland as a case study and as a prism through which to explore interventions globally. Thus the quote that we chose for our window were a few lines from Seamus Heaney's The Cure at Troy. And I'll just read those uh, to you in case you're not familiar with them. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. For me, Seamus Heaney encapsulates what we hope to achieve over the next few days. And let me explain why. I was born in Africa, but moved to Belfast in 1969, which was the year that the Troubles broke out. As a young person growing up in Belfast, during those very dark days of the 1970s and 1980s. Heaney's poetry articulated the trauma of those years. He helped me, he helped us, to make sense of a world for which we could not find words. It's not just the engineers, Paddy. <laughs> I first met uh, Seamus Heaney in the early 1990s when I was uh, uh, teaching in Aberdeen and over the decades was very privileged to spend time with him and his wonderful wife, Mary. I saw Seamus Heaney for the last time at a very intimate lunch that the Provost hosted in June 2013, six years ago, almost to the day. Remember that? At lunch, we celebrated the creation of the Seamus Heaney Chair of Irish Writing which is actually held by Chris Morash, who you'll be meeting on uh, Saturday. I was in Bombay two months later when I learned of his death. 
Now, when somebody dies and you're far away from home and you know you're not going to get back from the, you know, you're not going to get back from the funeral, you feel extremely. I was so sad. I was so emotional. Anyway, uh, I went the next day to the Willingdon Club, which is one of these relics from the Raj that serves comfort food. I'm sorry, homie, if I've offended anybody, but it's a very, very. Anyway, um, so we were having lunch, and um, the waiter. He said to me, Madam, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Ireland. And quick as a flash, he said, I was so sorry to hear yesterday that your national poet had died. Now this man, his first language was probably Gujarati, his second language was probably Hindi, and his third language was probably, uh, what was English. Uh, and it really brought home to me the fact that Hindi was such a global figure. But of course, he was also intensely local, rooted in Toner's Bog, in Belachi, in Mid-Ulster, and here in Ireland. And it was in the city of Derry, where Heaney and his close friends, Brian Friel and Shana Steen, were educated at St. Columns. It was in the Guild Hall in Derry that the cure at Troy was first performed in 1990 for Field Day. Stephen Ray, whom you'll meet on Saturday, and Brian Friel had founded Field Day in 1980, and Seamus Heaney was one of the founding directors. Now in 1990, the troubles were still raging in Ireland, but it was also a moment of hope. Velvet revolutions had swept across Europe, the Berlin Wall had come down, and Nelson Mandela had been released. It was another eight years, 1998, before the Good Friday Agreement, which ended 30 years of civil war in Ireland, was finally signed, and hope and history rhymed. So before I hand over to Professor Jok Learson, um, there's a few practical matters that I just need to bring to your attention. The first thing I want to do is ask you to forgive our appearance. You probably think there's a ploughing championship uh, out in Fellow Square, but we're actually remodelling uh, 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 this whole area, and there's construction upstairs. So I apologise uh, in advance. Uh, as we would say in Ireland, it's not so much as Murphy's Law, but Salt's Law. So oh, forgive me, Con. So that's the first thing. Uh, just to just to say, we're sorry about that. Um, in terms of our commitment, though, to the environment, all the programmes are online. Uh, please recycle your, keep, your cups in as far as you can. Bring keep cups in for coffee and water, and we'd love you to return the lanyards. And it's not that we're being cheap. We really do want to recycle them. Social media. We would love people to join the conversation on Twitter. Um, uh, so uh, the hashtag uh, we'd love you to use is CHCI at um, uh, 2019. So CHCI 2019 and the hub at TLRH hub and at CHCI network. I've just joined Twitter and I'm having great fun with it, uh, but getting my head around these hashtags is still killing me. All of these are in uh, the digital brochure. The Trinity Long Room Hub is open for tea and coffee 24-7. Anybody who knows me, I absolutely love tea. It has to be there on tap. Um, but also feel welcome to hang out in the ideas space or uh, anywhere in the building. It's there for you to use over the course uh, of the conference. 
The Hub is home to our visiting research fellows, and it's lovely to welcome back to the conference people who have been visiting research fellows at the Hub or who have been engaged with us in the past. It's lovely to see you back. It's also home to 40 amazing early career researchers. These are the ones in the pink t-shirts. Have we any pink t-shirts in the audience? I think we've got a few. Would you mind just standing up, please? I know it's awfully embarrassing. Just I'm sorry to are the lifeblood of our disciplines and of our universities and they're here to help you but do ask them about their research also we put their posters on display uh, to create those conversations uh, that really are so empowering uh, uh, for them and for us all um, I just want to say a few words of thanks it takes a village uh, to organize an international conference like this I, there are too many people to name but there are a few people that I just would like to acknowledge Starting with CHCI itself, uh, the organization has been an absolute pleasure to work with. I'm so grateful to my colleagues on the organizing committee, but also to the CHCI executive, uh, and particularly the president, Sarah Geyer, whom you'll hear from uh, in the long run, and Guillaume, who's probably organizing something outside. But the whole team has been amazing. I want to thank our cultural uh, partners, the Royal Irish Academy, the National Library of Ireland, the Hugh Lane and the Chester Beatty. You're all going to these cultural institutions uh, and yesterday the Academy uh, hosted us. And then of course I want to thank Trinity, the Provost. Um, his support for the arts and humanities has been phenomenal, not just by coming along today, but over the course of the time he's been president, he's just given us phenomenal support at a moment when Ireland was totally broke. Uh, so it, we really appreciate that. Uh, but also our colleagues in the dining hall, you'll meet uh, on Saturday night, and who are doing uh, uh, the catering and in the common room. I have a special word of thanks for my own colleagues in the Trinity Long Room Hub, they're the A-team. Um, uh, they really are amazing. Um, uh, Angie, Aoife, Ellie, Eve, Eva, Francesca, and the executive director, uh, Katrina. They could not have done more nor worked harder. Uh, Ellie put goodie bags together. Uh, and you've got a taste of Ireland in those goodie bags, folks. She also has uh, persuaded every local eatery to give you discounts of between, I don't know, 10 and 20% on your meals, your coffees. Uh, please avail of those discounts. You just need to show your uh, lanyard. I think above all, though, I want to uh, thank our fantastic lineup of distinguished speakers, our wonderful chairs. Amanda Anderson and Rosie Brigotti have just set the, the bar in terms of how to chair sessions. Uh, 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 our, uh, uh, our attendees. Um, you've come to Dublin, which is a pretty amazing city, folks. I hope you fall in love with it. But you come from six continents, 19 countries, and 145 humanities centres and institutes. And you know what? You've even brought the sunshine with you, because the weather last week was just appalling. Anyway, I now would like to turn uh, to our keynote speaker this evening, Jo Learson. Jo uh, Learson is Professor of European Studies at the University of Amsterdam. He has worked on the history of the articulation of national identity in Ireland as well as other uh, countries. He's worked on national stereotyping and on the transnational history of national movements. Among his English language books, because they are the ones I'll focus on, but of course, you, like a good Dutchman, is writes in many languages, 
Uh, but the ones that we have all worked with so much are Remembrance and Imagination and the National Thought in Europe. In 2008, he was awarded the hugely prestigious Spinoza Prize uh, and its flagship publication, Encyclopedia of Romantic Nationalism, was published uh, last uh, year. Um, and it's not just because Jung is a phenomenal uh, scholar and intellect that we invited him to speak uh, this evening. He's also a phenomenal friend of Trinity. He's an honorary fellow of the college. But he's also been involved with the Trinity Long Room Hub since we were a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I mean, it goes right back to the beginning. Um, back in 2006, um, the then provost uh, said, listen, we want to do something very special for the arts and humanities at Trinity. Uh, go up and come up with a really hairy, audacious idea. And so we looked at international best practice for a humanities research institute from around the world. That's actually where I met some of you, including Jim Chandler, who will uh, 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 close proceedings uh, on Saturday. So we looked at international best practice, we hibernicized it, we came up with a concept. And then the, the provost quite like said, well, how do I know this is world class? How do I know that you, know, you guys are as good as you think you are? So he brought in a team uh, led by uh, the late uh, John Laver and then Roy Foster and, and Neil Pearson. And these guys put us through our paces and they said, you know what, this is quite a good concept. You guys are really quite, yeah, I think we can give you the thumbs up. The timing was great because just at that moment, the Irish government had money. This is back in 2007-8. Um, and all the humanities people in Ireland got together. You heard from Dan Carey earlier. We created a consortium called the Irish, uh, no, the Humanities Serving Irish Society, which has morphed into the Irish Humanities Alliance. Uh, and the Irish government gave the consortium 28 million euro. Um, I was the PI for Trinity. I held a, a, a grant for 10.8 million. And I say that figure because I don't think I'll ever hold a grant for 10.8 million. <laughs> um, and, 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 and on the back of that, we built our really, really, really beautiful uh, uh, building, which stands very much as a beacon celebrating um, the arts of humanities, celebrating the arts and humanities in Ireland, but we hope uh, 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 more widely. Uh, Homi Baba was here recently giving our annual Humanities Horizon uh, lecture. And Homi, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but it was such a proud moment for me when we were doing a tour of the hub. And he says, Jane, I've got building envy. And when somebody from Harvard says that, you feel really dismayed. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, um, without further ado, um, you, be, you're an amazing scholar. You're a fabulous friend of the Trinity Long Room Hub uh, and of Trinity. Uh, you're a passionate advocate for the humanities. And I'd like everybody to join me in uh, uh, welcoming Professor Nearson to deliver a keynote address. What are the other countries good for between exoticism and cosmopolitanism? Join Yes, I am a hobby. Um, I, uh, this is very intimidating for me. Uh, I have uh, a number of uh, remits in this talk. I have to reflect a little bit on the theme of the conference, cultural interventions, uh, on the use of the humanities, and also to vindicate the fact that Ireland is an important part of the world where we can all meet and function as a prism of the world. So, um, uh, I want to begin by picking up where the, uh, the, you know, uh, the debate before the coffee break left off. 
um, on the importance of the humanities, and my own take on it is, is a negative one. Um, it's what I call the scurvy argument. Uh, sailors on long sea voyages got this disease called scurvy, and they didn't know what it was until the sailors were made to drink lime juice, and that cured it, and they, this is how vitamin C was discovered. Um, and I think if you look now at illiberal democracies and fools in high office and the dumbing down of post-truth and fake news and false fact societies, uh, I say, you know, this is a lack of vitamin C, sort of political scurvy going on. Disinvest in the humanities for the past 30 years and this is what you end up with. So that's my own you know, take on the humanities. Uh, what I showed you here, I hope to come back to briefly, is uh, my, my stamp collection here. I, I hope uh, it's uh, something we're doing now with digital humanities at the University of Amsterdam. We're mapping complex systems. And we're basically trying to show how romantic nationalism from the, in the 19th century morphed into banal nationalism in the 20th century and is now morphing into ethno-populism in the 21st century. Um, this is a, a historical intellectual history that sociologists and political scientists cannot do and where the humanities might have a remit. Okay, let me click this one. Um, change my subtitle. What are other countries good for? How culture makes and breaks comfort zones. So what, what I need to do is, um, what, what the humanities do basically. Um, humanities are special because they reflect on identity as a negotiated process rather than taking it for granted as a categorical starting point. So politics nowadays is being eaten up by identity politics. And we need specialists who can critically reflect on what we mean by the identity and identity politics. And um, I would start from a, a baseline definition that this is a, this identity is a self-articulation in the world uh, to create a, a sense of space for the self. And this is a cognitive and a verbal and indeed a cultural activity and an intervention. It's that sense of homecoming that you have when you hear the name of Seamus Heaney in distant parts. Um, Creating a, a sense of space for the self uh, can happen in a blithe, you know, European middle-class white male sort of a Hegelian growth process. Or it can be more fraught uh, in Kierkegaardian angst or by way of indeed trauma uh, and the notion of Unheimlichkeit, as Freud would call it, the fact that the world is not a home. That it is familiar, but at the same time it looks like a heim, but it's an Unheim, it's a non-home, it's a labyrinth. Um, which is dreary, repetitious, and, and uncanny, as the uh, translation would be, um, and uh, where we uh, have to come to terms with something called something traumatic in our past. And this is where Ireland comes in. Um, in, in defining the uncanny and in talking about trauma, uh, Ireland is, is a good historical test case because, as my brother-in-law Fergal says, uh, and he's Irish from the Dublin North Side. Um, we're the best. We're the West and we're oppressed. So, <laughs> so it's all white, Northwest European, and at the same time there is this colonial background. So you've seen the world from both sides. Uh, this is uh, part of it. So uh, you, it, it's a very well documented, articulate culture with a big archive, and that's a privilege. And at the same time there is a deep sense of trauma which was articulated by very articulate people. And James Joyce famously defined history as a nightmare, nightmare from which he was trying to wake up. That's the very definition of trauma. The living, the 
catastrophe of history over and over and over again and not being able to wake up from it, um, to be caught in that unhangly obsession um, of the past. Um, Ireland um, is, uh, you know, the anchoring point for what is truly a global gathering here. And I'm, I'm trying to bring in a sort of European mid-level without wanting to be Eurocentric, but it could be a good sort of conduit between Ireland and, and the global community that we have assembled here. Um, and uh, I would like to, um, I, I, as you see in, in, in the different, uh, in the change subtitle, I would like to reflect a little bit on things like trauma in trying to articulate a sense for yourself in the world, how that happens uh, at the individual level and how that was reflected in culture um, and how we understand the process with the aid of culture. And if we can at all um, navigate so easily from the personal to the national, that we talk about traumas and, you know, a sense of self. Does that apply to the individual? Does it apply to nations? Now, I'm going to click to my next slide. Here it is. Um, and I want to start with the famous uh, beginning of Dickens' Great Expectations. Because here is a sense of self that is nowhere and has to really uh, articulate um, a space in a hostile world, almost like an Agamben-style homo sacker, just reduced to the bare minimum. Uh, and, and most of you will be very familiar with this fantastic opening of the novel. My father's family name being Gurb, and my Christian name Philip, my infant tongue could make both names nothing longer or more explicit than Pip. So I called myself Pip and came to be called Pip. I, gave, I guess Pip as my father's family name on the authority of his tombstone. As I never saw my father or my mother, my first fancies regarding what they were like were unreasonably derived from their tombstones. The shape of the letters on my father's gave me an odd idea that he was a square, stout, dark man with curly black hair. From the character and turn of the inscription, also Georgiana, wife of the above, I drew a childish conclusion that my mother was freckled and sickly. Ours was the marsh country, down by the river, within, as the river wound, 20 miles of the sea. My first, most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things, I'll come back to that, the identity of things, seems to me to have been gained on a memorable raw afternoon towards evening. At such a time, I found out for certain that this bleak place, overgrown with nettles, was the churchyard. And that Philip Pirrip, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried. And that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abram, Tobias, and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried. And that the dark, flat wilderness beyond the churchyard intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes. And that the low leaden line beyond was the river. And that the distant savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea. And that the small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was good. Okay, so, um, huddled against the wind and in a very liminal situation between land and sea, between life and death, uh, in a non-lieu, in an in-between space, uh, the beginnings of identity take shape in a, in a, in a traumatic process. It hurts. Uh, that's why newly born infants cry, I suppose. Um, this has something to do with Ireland, and I, this is the first cultural connection I'd like to flag. The beginning a story or a poem in a liminal setting is, in fact, the reactivation of a very old type of poetics, which is not classicist, not classical. Romantic and before Romantic Celtic and the direct forerunner of Dickens is the uh, Ulster poet Art McCoy from 1800 
from the 18th century, who describes uh, in an Ashling poem, a poem where he has a vision, how in a troubled state of mind he falls asleep in a churchyard, and then in a vision he sees the personification of the country coming to charm him. In the graveyard of Cregan I slept last night, aggrieved. At daybreak a fair maiden came to me and kissed me. Her rosy cheeks were aglow and luster was in her golden hair. It was a world-soothing bond to set eyes on this young queen. This is the poetics of liminality, a mantic type of poetry, not very far removed from shamanism, where the poem in a, in a sort of transport moves from the usual society of you know, normal uh, relations into a strange spirit world. And usually the transition is marked on a hilltop, on a seashore, on a riverbank, in a churchyard, between places, in a non-lieu, and the poet is in a troubled state of we can trace this back very far in Bardic Irish poetry. And how did it make its way to Dickens? Am I just being fanciful here? I don't think I am. Uh, when Macquarie wrote this in the mid in the mid 18th century, this type of liminal inspiration was nowhere. A century later, it's everywhere. Let us go then, you and I, and watch the evening spread out like a patient etherized upon a table. Or the beginning of Wilkie Collins, the woman in white. Liminality is always the beginning of a, a rattling good poem or a rattling good story. And I think the transition was marked by Macpherson's Ossian, who was to some extent a fraud, pretending to be an ancient bard. Um, but in one aspect, he was absolutely true to the materials that he drew on. Ossian himself is always seen as a sort of a prophetic Isaiah or, uh, you know, ancient testament prophet uh, character with a long beard between two worlds, the spiritual and the social, on a hilltop in stormy surroundings, the sublime taste of the late 18th century, and the harp hanging in the tree as the wind wafting through it, it becomes an Aeolian harp, and the vibrations set it humming and the Poet responds by channeling the spirit world and singing his mournful songs. And I think that he was really drawing on this tradition of Celtic liminality and Ashland poetry in setting the scene like that. Okay, so um, why was I reminded of Pip when I was thinking of Ireland and cultural interventions? It was partly because Pip reminded me of um, two poems that became fused in my mind uh, with elements from Yeats and from Seamus Heaney. Um, uh, the, um, uh, liminal thing is one thing, but I was particularly interested in the small bundle of shivers that is, uh, you know, trying to find protection against the storm. And my question was, is finding protection culture, or is the storm culture? Is culture the storm, or is the protection we need from the storm? And uh, very strongly, I thought, you know, of this famous, you know, sound by Blaze, out of Ireland have we gone great hatred little room named us at the start. And then Seamus Heaney's no less famous, whatever you say, say nothing. With that incredible Heaney-esque three-letter word in the last line, announced by gag. Earlier on, it becomes hug in the last line. The famous northern reticence, the tight gag of place and times. Yes, yes. Of the we six, I sing. Where to be saved, you only must save face. And whatever you say, you say nothing. Smoke signals are loud mouth compared with us. 
Is there a life before death? That's chalked up in Belly Murphy. Competence with pain, coherent miseries, a bite and sup. We hug our little destiny again. So, is culture a hug? Is that what it does? Does it give us shelter from the storm? Uh, is there a certain claustrophilia at work? And I was thinking of people huddled up and shivering and trying to, you know, minimize their contact with the blustering, you know, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And I came, uh, what then came to mind was Didier Monsieur's very, very interesting theory that he developed in the 1970s and turned into a book in the 1980s on le moi beau. Where is our identity located? The ancient Greeks thought it was in the stomach. We still talk of gut feelings. Um, is it located in the heart? Is it located in the brain? And certainly as you know, a lot of brain people are materializing our brain process as, as our identity. Anjou comes up with a totally different part of the body. He says the part of the body where our identity lo is located is our skin. And he outlines a number of stages that the sensation of your skin, your outside, goes through in your development from um, unborn embryo to grown up. Um, it contains us, it keeps our guts from falling out, it envelops us, it protects us, it prevents bacteria coming in. Um, it is very early on a way we identify and we identify other people. We recognize faces, we, we recognize skin color, when we see other persons, we recognize them by the shape of their skin and by the color of their skin. It's a sensory organ. We feel the wind on our skin, we can grab things, we can you know, apprehend things in the literal meaning of the word. Um, and it can be an, an organ of love, it can be tactile tenderness, you can touch other people with it, it becomes part of our erotic life. And finally, and it is our interface with the world. It's not only where our bodies are bounded, but also where they start interacting with the rest of the world. And in that double function, Anjou has a vet. He's, of course, a, a psychoanalyst, which means, you know, he pretends that he peels off the metaphors to come to the real truth about life, but in fact, he's just wrapping it up in metaphors. But I think the, the skin metaphor is a nice one. It's a, a creative one. It's an enabling one. It's a nice way to look at it. Um, and uh, for him, he, he said, if something goes wrong in that development, it might be one of the ways to understand and diagnose the condition of autism. <coughs> Uh, but I think, you know, hugging and, and, and what you do with your skin uh, and how you interact with the world while having a sense of bounded identity. Uh, this is how I linked Heaney and Art McCooey and uh, Pip later uh, of this parish. Um, much of this is in the, in, in, by way of trauma. And how we articulate a sense of place in the world at this moment is very fraught. I personally think that that is because we are in a particular stage of development of the humanities, the traumatic paradigm. After triumphalist and critical history, we now have traumatic history, we are really empathizing with the victims of history, with the underdogs, and we see this as the formative way to understand how the majority of humanity experiences history, and certainly that works very well for Ireland. Um, it also does things to our language. I remember my mother, I, I'm not traumatized at all, right? I, I'm a happy, white, middle-class baby woman. Uh, so, you know, it's nice to be Dutch. Uh, it's an inoffensive small country. Uh, but my mother was traumatized, I know trauma. My mother was, 
you know, left her house on the, on the 14th of May 1940 when Rotterdam was bombed by the, by the invading German forces. And she literally had the clothes on her back and one medal around her neck, and the rest was lost. And she never stopped talking about it. So I grew up with those stories, and those stories were always in a double mode. They were always prefaced by, I never talk about this, but you, you have to know that. <laughs> uh, and this is the sort of thing we never talk about. And as, as a, an adolescent, this drew me spare. But I have much more understanding, thanks also to the work of you know, Anne Stoller, because my mother was stuttering. She was talking and not talking at the same time. She was doing that traumatic thing, where talking is both the cure and the pathology of your trauma. You have to talk through it, and at the same time, this rep repetitious talking through it is the problem and the cure at the same time. And it was a form of stuttering, or what Anne Stoller calls aphasia. And she very specifically applies the idea of aphasia to a post-colonial situation. When you come out of your colonial trauma, how do you talk about your past? So you see people negotiating this fraught, difficult space between silence and speech. And you're, you're sort of like a dog on the ice and you don't get traction. And indeed, I think that has been um, a, a, a very important part of the modernist poetics. Adorno said there is no poetry after Auschwitz, but there's a lot of stuttering. And my example here is the Todesfugel by Paul Celan, which is again doing that, turning around in circles and, and not being able to stop talking and at the same time never really getting to the point. Schwarze Müchter, früher trinken wir, wir trinken dich nachts, wir trinken dich mittags und morgens, wir trinken dich abends, wir trinken und trinken. Ein Mann wohnt im Haus, dein goldenes Haar, Margarete, dein aschenes Haar, Sulamit, er spielt mit den Schlangen. Er ruft, spielt süßer den Tod. Der Tod ist ein Meister aus Deutschland. Er ruft, streicht dunkler die Geigen, dann steigt ihr als Rauch in die Luft, dann habt ihr ein Grab in den Wolken, da liegt man nicht eng. This is one of the most powerful verbal reflections of the experience of the camps that Bolsillan himself went through. And it is that fracture and breakup that is part of the modernist aesthetics, and I would say a literature of trauma. Um, an aphasia uh, uh, at the line of poetics. It wasn't always like that. This is a phase. This is very much a 20th century phase in our historical awareness. For Wordsworth, who was a bit like me, I guess, you know, a happy middle class fellow in a comfort zone, um, culture was not a storm, it was a breeze. And when he sees himself as that Ossian style Aeolian harp responding to the wind, and channeling inspiration from this invisible hand wafting through the strings of his temperament. The opening of the prelude in almost Homeric fashion says, Oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. A visitant that while it fans my cheek doth seem half conscious of the joy it brings from the green fields and from yon azure sky. Whatever its mission, the soft breeze can come to none more grateful than to me. Escaped from the vast city where long I had pined a discontented sojourner, now free, free as a bird, to settle where I will. This is not really having a problem with articulating your space in the world. You can just go out and be nomadic and just move around. So is culture a hug or is culture a breeze? And how do the two relate? And something suggests to me that they might correlate roughly with a traumatic or a non-traumatic experience, to come from an entitled country or to come from a colonial country, islands both. So uh, it's, it's a good testing ground 
for these type of assumptions. And what I'd like to do is to look from the point of view of imagology, which is that specialism that looks at the articulation of stereotypes of identity, um, in, in a way, in the stadialism that Anjou outlines when he talks about the stages of, of awareness of one's skin, uh, from a baby to an adult, uh, how aware of your, of your skin, or of your boundedness. Um, and uh, maybe run that through a couple of European cultures and through Ireland and see how that works. What, how, do we, how does culture articulate a space of self and other in the world um, from a zero state of, state of almost babyish ambient inarticulate ethnocentrism to an opposition between self and other, with explicit self-images, to positioning oneself amidst others, complicated self-image, to others. I think I'm a bit more of a pessimist. I think at the moment we are living in a carnival of others and selves and banal nationalism and what I call universalized exceptionalism. This is, in the second half of the talk, the trajectory I'm going to take you through um, uh, just to, to, to try and, and lift the moi from the private bodily level of the individual to the social level of how societies articulate themselves. Um, so, you know, ambient inarticulate ethnocentrism, and I call that the, uh, the anthropology of all this goal, you know, funny guys, those Romans, um, is universal. We find it in the Old Testament, we find it in medieval Chinese sources, we find it in the names of many societies, the self-names that they gave, and they call themselves we who speak, and they call strangers those who speak funny. Uh, so there is an idea that strangers are strange, that the word strange has this deeply seated double meaning that whatever is unfamiliar from outside your domestic sphere is somehow weird and, and sort of, you know, laughable or, or, or uncouth. Um, and uh, that is sort of ambient, but you know, that's, this, that's the, it's basically having a subjectivity. If you have to stand somewhere in the world, you might as well stand on your own soles, on the soles of your own feet. So, you know, you can't blame people for starting from there. The question is what they learn in moving on from there. And this is where an interesting European comparison between powerful countries and subaltern countries comes in. I want to address this in two examples. Opposing self to other, uh, so creating these binary opposites, and in the process creating an explicit self-image. We know who we are because we're not like them over there. That this, this sort of antagonistic self-positioning, uh, which um, is documented very well in, in the case between France and, and, and Germany. So uh, you know, I, I put some ideotypical. Uh, here's the, the bookworm, uh, the Biedermeier painting of a German scholar in his library, I, and then there's the portrait of Robert de Montesquieu, the uh, Parisian dandy of uh, Proust fame, and they summarize two, you know, ethnic profiles, stereotypes, how countries saw each other mutually, and also how they saw themselves, how they internalized this stereotype. Um, the, the process was shaped very much at traumatic moments. You'd be surprised to learn from two European countries. The traumatic moment when France went under the Ger when Germany went under the French yoke during the Napoleonic times in the early 19th century, and then the opposite thing when France went under the German yoke after they lost the war of 1870-71. In that process, you see that Germans reject French culture as being glib, superficial, full of easy charm, but really untrustworthy. Whereas they are a bit dull, slow, but profound and honest, and, and you know trustworthy. 
So the, the Germans have all, the French have all the glamour, and the Germans have all the substance. Um, and that becomes heightened when, by the end of the 19th century when it becomes an almost anthropological binary which governs all of Europe. Southern Europe is uh, charming and untrustworthy, and Northern Europe is not so nice but it's trustworthy. And nowadays in the Euro debates, it, this old north-south opposite is still playing itself out. It's as deeply ingrained as gender. It's one of the really overriding problems in Europe is the North is cool and rational and cerebral, and the South is, you know, heart or underbelly, is passionate, is lovely, but, uh, you know, not really good for the Euro. Um, <laughs> in the First World War, which was the first war fought with propaganda as one of the main strategies, it becomes an overriding thing that this is a war between what the Germans call culture and the French call civilisation. And the words themselves are already culture and civilisation. Uh, uh, you see the whole uh, attitude right there, or what the Germans call Geist and the French call Esprit. Um, we're still working through the propaganda of the First World War, and now in the you know uh, centenaries that are outside Ireland are concerned with whose fault it really was, and the propaganda of the First War, World War is still really bedeviling European relations right now. I won't go into that, but suffice it to say that here we have two halves which are really totally each other's opposite halves, but like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, they also start resembling each other. And in the 19th century, you get a terrible symmetry between these polar opposites. So if you look at the cultural repertoire with which this is formulated, a lot of weaponized names come to the fore. So a lot of Germanias are girding their loins to be the Vast on the Rhine, the Watch on the Rhine, and you know, uh, um, and, me, and at the same time, the cult of Joan of Arc, uh, another, you know, babe who kicks ass, uh, is become, becoming very important for France because Joan of Arc is from Lorraine, and she will, you know, the way she saved France in the Middle Ages from the English, she will now, her legacy will save France, like a latter-day Marianne uh, from, the, uh, from the Germans. Terrible symmetry. This is how it would, would work out between two non-subaltern, metropolitan and titled European countries, both with a, a strong cultural sense of self-worth. The situation with a semi-colonial country like Ireland is very different. Here we have an asymmetry. So the ethnotypes that are at work, the ideas of national character that are involved in the Irish-English confrontation, are very asymmetrical, and they reflect a situation of total hegemony. Um, so here is Sergeant's uh, portrait of Lord Ribblesdale, is straight from Downton Abbey, you know, uh, an English gentleman to a T, uh, ideal typical, um, cold, stiff upper lip, Phineas Fogg, you know, playing his whist while he's traveling around the world, oh, and uh, next to him is this Neanderthal Yahoo sitting on a, uh, you know, a, a barrel of, of gunpowder, um, the Fenian Irish. Now, throughout history, and I'll just summarize in two sentences, an enormous body of work, uh, the ethnotype of the Irish vacillates between two extremes. The Irish are either unruly yahoos, subhumans, violent, um, uh, unruly, wayward, almost, you know, uh, gorilla-like also in their physiognomy, with heavy jowls and low foreheads, um, or else they are misty-eyed dreamers are in the fifth dimension wondering about otherworldly things and the foggy west of things. The, those two fascinating stereotypes collapse into one thing. The Irish are not rational. They're either 
you know, challenged by irrationality and being violent and bestial, or they're irrational in that they're mystical. And, and both of these uh, forms of irrationality are opposed to the, you know, the contained, self-contained, disciplined, strong-willed, stiff or polite English gentleman who is continent. The Irish are incontinent, the English are continent. So, um, how do you articulate an identity on the basis of such a hegemonic asymmetry? Well, you become a rebel and you internalize that. And so, the sort of thing that you see here, this is a, a rebel from 1798, uh, commemorated in the town of Tralee in 1898, with a statue that was put up in the National Braves Commission. Um, the pikeman, so he's just a, a peasant, but he's a heroic peasant, he's a freedom fighter. Um, and, what, and when I showed this to my dear friend and mentor, Anne Dooley, in, in Toronto, uh, who's from Ross Gray, she immediately said indignantly, there were no rebels in Tralee in 1798. All the fighting went on in Mayo and Wexford and Belfast and Tralee. What, what right do they have to put up a statue if they get stung in, in 1798? But that's exactly what the statue does. Any fighting that went on anywhere in Ireland is commemorated everywhere in Ireland. So the space of Ireland is homogenized. And the, the risings of 1798 are no longer localized, regional risings, but they are national risings. And everybody is participant in that in the commemoration. On the plinths of the statue, insurrectionists from the intervening century are commemorated. Uh, Wolf Tone, uh, Robert Emmett, John Mitchell, and the Manchester Martyrs. And this unifies not only the nation's territory, but also the nation's history. All of Irish history becomes this master narrative of English misrule and Irish rebellion. And the trauma, every time we rose and then we were oppressed again, the nightmare of history is turned into a master narrative of resistance. Every time they beat us down, we rose again and we asserted ourselves in arms once again. And that will become the inspiration of the rising of 1916. We never gave up. We never acquiesced. We never, you know, uh, let our defeat be the last word. 30 years later, another generation asserted Irish freedom in arms. So uh, Irish identity is very strongly monopolized by the English as the unique uh, other against which, which it's silhouetted. Okay, so, um, to the 20th century now. This was 19th century oppositional stuff. Into the 20th century, we get a much more complicated, fractured sense of self, very often linked to Sartre and existentialism. And from Sartre, of course, we get the two hugely important traditions of Simone de Beauvoir, who applies it to gender, and Franz Fanon, who applies it to race. And um, uh, I quote Fanon here, uh, you know, to, to, to give that idea of a, a complicated, Iterative feedback loop identity as, as a process. C'est le blanc qui crée le nègre, mais c'est le nègre qui crée la négritude. So it's the white man who creates the negro, but it's the negro who will create his blackness or the negritude movement uh, that was so strong in France in the 20th century. So there is a, a dialectics of identity going on. And I think Sartre might have been inspired by Joyce. I think very often literature is in advance of science or of philosophy and is playing out in the, um, in the sanctuary of fiction notions that will be picked up later in society by different forces. So Joyce, who is looking at us and as modern sort of, you know, semioticians would have it, looking boldly and meeting the, other, the, the onlooker's gaze, that, that's one of those things, yeah, that's, he really 
The, the, the story is, of course, that he was looking at the photographer wondering could he borrow a pound from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joy, I have to be brief on this, but uh, um, Joyce has three important lines beside the nightmare of history thing. One is that the, one of the leading things in, in Ulysses is to see ourselves as others see us. So that is a mutuality between you seeing yourself and being aware of how others see you. And this is a new stage uh, beyond the pip stage, if you like, uh, of, of articulating your identity. But he is at the same time more than a sort of a Frenchman satire aware that in Ireland this is not easy. Ireland as a, an ex-colonial country has no real untroubled relationship with its own identity. It has always defined itself as somebody's other. Beauvoir will say in gender. Joyce is already intuiting in, in Ulysses, we have never been ourselves. We've only been the opposite number of England. And how do we get our own sense of identity? Typical post-colonial quandary. And he plays it through beautifully in a very poignant scene in Ulysses, the Narzika scene uh, on the beach of, of uh, Dublin, um, where a young woman, uh, a nanny, an au pair, is uh, looking after children, and Mr. Bloom is watching her, and she meets his gaze, and a strange voyeuristic play is played out between them. Uh, she is sort of leaning back and allowing him to peep up her skirts, and he is looking at her, and this is a strange exhibitionist, voyeuristic thing, which is also very sad because there's no skin involved. This is not real tenderness. And both of them are only fantasizing of what the other might be, and it's not really a real encounter. They are, and Gertie McDowell, aware of this voyeur looking at her, sees herself as others see her. So she's part of a self-victimization. And even in her language, she has no words of her own to describe her sensations, except in the borrowed discourse of uh, cheap novelettes and cheap journalism. And if I just read one sentence, you get the, the, the terrible, cliched, uh, consumerist, derivative language, which is the only discourse that Gertie McDowell has to think about herself. Gertie McDowell, who was seated near her companions, lost in thought, gazing far away into the distance, was, in very truth, as fair a specimen of winsome Irish girlhood as one could wish to see. She was pronounced beautiful by all who knew her, though, as folks often said she was more of a gilder than MacDowell. Her figure was slight and graceful, inclining even to fragility, but those iron jalloids she had been taking of late had done her a world of good, much better than the widow Welch's female pills. And she was much better of these discharges she used to get, that tired feeling. The waxen pallor of her face was almost spiritual in its ivory-like purity, though her rosebud mouth was a genuine Cupid's bow, greatly perfect, and so on and so on. You get the idea. So this terribly cloying, cliched, Purple prose is what Gertie McDowell has internalized from the only reading that's available to her. She only sees herself as she has been programmed to be seen by others. And so this radical self-estrangement is already denounced by Joyce in the, in the very poignant episode. Ireland at this time formulates a fundamental quandary which is still played out in identity politics nowadays. In 1907, three years after Bloomsday, the Abbey Theatre, Yeats' theatrical venture, staged a riotous uh, playboy of the, uh, comedy by J.M. Singh, which was basically doing to the Orestes tragedy uh, through the Marx Brothers. So it was turning a, you know, a tragedy into a farce. It's about a man who kills a father figure, 
Um, and uh, the Abbey Theatre was trying to bring cosmopolitan avant-garde theatre to Dublin. So this anarchic comedy about killing the father figure took place in the countryside, which was depicted almost in Chagall terms as a vitalistic, violent, immoral, colorful. And this became a huge scandal. It was a querelle the way the French had them in the 17th century. Uh, because the nationalist audience hated the play. They wanted to see a national theater, not a cosmopolitan theater. And in the process, national and cosmopolitan became opposite numbers. They wanted to see plays celebrating the Irish peasantry, like the Pikeman statue, that sort of play. And initially the Abbey catered for that, but this was somehow different. And so they felt that Singh's play was a mockery of Irish nationality. The Playboy riots are a formative moment in Irish history, and I think they're paradigmatic for identity politics ever since. Um, for Yeats and Singh and the Abbey elitists, Ireland can only become a nation if it ceases to be a province. You have to move away from your provincialism and take part of the cosmopolitan avant-garde, Ibsen, the art theatres, that is Europe. For the Irish, Europe is decadence, is oppression, is the big wide world, is the winds blasting over the marsh countries against which they want to hook their little destinies. Europe is decadence, this is the period of Max Nordau, of the Untergang des Abendlandes, there is a, a, you know, a great mistrust in where Europe is going, and the nativists feel that, you know, to make Ireland great again, to quote a contemporary political slogan, you have to get rid of the foreign stuff and fall back on your own roots. This contrast between nativism and cosmopolitanism was never so clearly formulated before, and I think it has stayed with us ever since. And I think it's a really good prism, as, as Jane would call it, to understand a lot of identity problems in the world today. Okay, so here is my stamp collection. I'm going to finish on that. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, in the 20th century, we get banal nationalism. So the statues that were put up in the 19th century are first put on banknotes, and then they're put on postage stamps. And they're all over the place. Everybody who was a nerd like me had a stamp collection as a young boy. And what we did in uh, you know, the Encyclopedia of Romantic Nationalism was to look at anybody who was part of a national canon and put on a stamp and see on, you know, on what country's stamps they were put. Now, in the 1890s, um, every, you, every country created its own national canon. They were separate. Every country celebrated itself. And this intensified in the 1930s with a very few hyper-canonical figures like Goethe or Karl Marx linking countries uh, in, in more than one line. And then what you see um, from the mid-40s onwards is the rise of internationalism. Stamps of all things become transnational. Um, and as much as there are national clusters, if you like, culture as a hook, Culture is also a breeze, and the stamps and the communications of the letters uh, you know, link countries and create a, a transnational or international hypercar. Um, so, you know, you have certain countries that are out on the fringes, like Portugal, Netherlands, Belgium, and Spain. They do their own thing. They have little connection with the rest of uh, the transnational hub of this social network graph. Um, culture forms clusters, and these are national. But at the same time, culture forms connections, and these are transnational. And so in the middle of the thing, we see central connectors who are usually from the realm of high culture, like Gutenberg, Goethe, Curie, Byron, Galilei, Voltaire, Verdi, Mozart. You see that internationalism is also creating a very strong sense of Eurocentrism. Um, and small countries with a large transnational outreach, like San Marino, Vatican, and Liechtenstein. So where is Ireland? 
It's small, but it's also on the, on the periphery. I'm afraid Jane Ireland is just not much of a participant in these processes. The only links they have with the rest of the world are stamps that they put out for Jonathan Swift, who links them with Europe, and George Washington, and Mahatma Gandhi, who linked them to the rest of the world. So it is interesting that Ireland stands between a European Eurocentrist hypercanon and a more global sense of identity. In the 20th century, banal nationalism is taking part in uh, what I would call auto-exoticism. Exoticism has been internalized. Ireland has always been England's other. And England has always seen Ireland as an exotic, different location where people are strange. And now, as a country, Ireland is saying, yeah, that's what we are. We're strange. We're really interesting for that reason. You know, we are so unusual. We are so special. And Ireland begins to market itself by saying, come to Ireland and you'll see something really different from what you're used to. Um, this is taking place in a sort of a Walter Benjamin sense of a modernity that is panoramatic. Benjamin describes shopping malls, world fairs, travel agencies, a, 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 you know, mobility, consumer culture, um, and a culture that is commodified for a transnational consumption. Um, I'm thinking of the Passage and uh, very and um, world expo fairs, tourism, and indeed postage stamps are part of that Benjamin style of modernity, and auto-exoticism thrives in this. So the two pictures I have here are taken from the first presentation of Ireland at the World's Fair as an independent country, Chicago 1933, a very traditionalist Celticist designed official handbook of the free state, um, and a pageantry, the pageant of the Celt, where again you see a with, you know, uh, round towers in the background, uh, a self-proclamation, look at how different and, and traditional we are. Everywhere, this, this is a sort of real 20th century taste. Irish airlines, modernity, you know, you can move, and at the same time, when you do, you, you, you reach a totally pre-modern society. So Ireland is trying to sell its sense of non-modernity in, in a very modern world. I would say that auto-exoticism has thrived, and particularly for the tourist trade. And you'll get a fair bit of it here. Lots of people will love to tell you about Ireland and tell you how special and how unusual Ireland is. Auto-exoticism is still a bit of an affliction. It's in a way the sense that it's very hard to return to a sense that you're just normal, just like any other country. But that's what we are by now. There's nothing special about thinking that you're special. I call this the paradox of universalized exceptionalism. That is the legacy of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, it's also very strong in the hop-on, hop-off buses, the tourism that is now, the, cru the cruise ships that are turning all the cities into one big, you know, uh, sphere of, of consumerism everywhere in the world. And at the same time, we want to sell the idea that you're in an exotic place. The illusion of normalcy is still at work. National thought and the, the cultural attempts to intervene in between us and the world still holds that nations are most fundamentally themselves and those aspects in which they differ most from other nations. And that, if we reflect on it, is a fallacy. It could well be that the most important aspects of our nations are in which we're exactly like all the other nations, where we just share a common humanity or a common destiny. And I think the lesson that I would take away from this is culture affirms who we are, but it also suggests how we can be different. And that is what humanity is going to be. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Joe, for that.